Good. Most of you are long-term practitioners and um, have been exposed to probably considerable amounts of Buddhist teaching. And um, I'd be interested tonight to talk about some of the maps by which we explore practice. Our practice of meditation and our practice of uh, mind cultivation, as I... uh, in some way like to call it, uh, I prefer calling it uh, that way, uh, development, uh, mind cultivation, which it's a more encompassing term for what I believe to uh, hear or to listen or to understand from the Buddhist teaching. So this uh, mind cultivation business has maps. And obviously much of how we relate to our experience, uh, our training, our um, understanding of what's happening to us, much of that happens uh, on the basis of our understanding of those maps. In other words, we, we rate our progress on the basis of our understanding of maps. We rate, uh, we try to position ourselves on the basis of those maps. Um, we um, feel self-disparaging on, uh, about not achieving what we believe is the next point on the map, and it just doesn't seem to come. We may get conceited and inflated when we think that didn't take as long, did it? Yeah. So our reference to those maps has a dramatic impact on how we think and how we feel about ourselves in practice. And I uh, just like to put the the light on some of these attitudes we may encounter and maybe also actually on how we hold these maps because there seem to be quite a few of them. A very famous map and I think immensely practical is the map of the uh, four establishments of mindfulness. These uh, establishments of mindfulness are spoken of much. In fact, the Satipatthana Sutta occurs three times in the Pali Canon. Uh, It used to occur three times in the Pali Canon. Some of our diligent uh, sub-editors in the 20th century have edited away one of the uh, variation, varied versions of the Satipatthana Sutta and have made that we have now two versions of the Satipatthana Sutta. They have packed the, the slight extended bit, which we know from one of the versions, it's the Maha Satipatthana Sutta in the Diganikaya. They have packed that into the Pali of the Satipatthana Sutta in the middle length things. So the Burmese tradition has now, instead of three Satipatthana Suttas, only two of them. Although one is slightly embellished by a particular passage which occurs only in the bigger in the Maha Satipatthana. But details aside, the Satipatthanas are immensely practical because they relate directly to our experience. What is the raw material in that air in these Satipatthanas? The establishments of mindfulness are, um, we are encouraged to particularly pay attention uh, how mindfulness comes about in four differing areas, which are all 
happening concurrently in our life. Nobody ever gets just one Satipatthana. Think of those Satipatthanas as TV channels. Uh, they're, They're always broadcasting, but you tune into a particular station. And depending on which station you tune into, that's what you get. So, that doesn't mean that the other stations are not broadcasting. It just means you're not tuned into them. That's an important, I think, thing to take note of. No Satipatthana is a singular occurrence. The smallest amount of human experience, if you want to use the Satipatthana model, is all four of them. Practically, if we translate that um, somewhat irreverently into a psychological language, then it would mean uh, the first of the Satipatthanas refers to our somatic experience. Kaya Nupasana, and I'm not speaking of the exercise, I'm just speaking of the territory, the raw material for Kaya Nupasana is body. Whatever we can feel of the body. It's body sensation. It's the body as a somatic, immediate experience with all its senses. Channel number two is pleasure. It's the degree of pleasure or displeasure we experience. If you want to be psychological about it, we can call it hedonic. What we uh, respond to with gratification and what we respond to with slight contraction is channel two. Every aspect of our experience, anything we can experience through our six senses, will produce some form of pleasurable, displeasurable, or neutral tone in our feeling. So many teachers, and I uh, amongst them, translate this term Pali, Vedana, not as sensation, but as um, feeling tone. The English word feeling, like German words or French words in that respect are completely rubbery term. We don't quite know what a feeling is, to be honest. You know? I have a feeling we should go now. It's somewhat different than um, I have a funny feeling in my stomach or uh, uh, I feel now it's time that we do something else. You know? These are two, three different notes, notions of the term feeling. So it's not quite clear what a feeling is. Is it an emotion? Is it a sensation? We don't know. In popular parlance, uh, we are conveniently foggy about this. So it's a not very happy term to uh, translate a very specific uh, key notion in Buddhist psychology. Vedana are very, very crucial. And it's one of the situations where we have very clear understanding of what it is, even though we don't have a proper word for it in English. Vedana pretty much determine where the untrained mind's attention goes. Vedana's rule, that's the deal. If we don't have training, if we haven't learned to uh, practice with reactivity or with pleasure-seeking, then Vedanas are basically what determine the economy of our attention. So it's important to get a clear understanding of how deeply we are impacted by what the Buddhist teaching calls uh, feeling tone, how profoundly this is ingrained in our mind and how uh, deep the consequences 
of that um, inclination of mind uh, is, is having, yeah, is impacting our experience. So channel two, nice, not nice, like, not like, interesting, not interesting. Oh yes, please more, no thanks enough today. Yeah? Every aspect of our experience, what we think, what we feel, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, is having an aspect of Vedana. There is a third type of Vedana, which is neutral. And meditators spend quite some time identifying neutral Vedanas. In practical life, they don't really make much, uh, they're not very crucial, to be honest with you. Most people miss even the subtly pleasant and the subtly unpleasant of their Vedana, let alone the neutral ones. Neutral Vedanas don't seem to trigger much. Yeah. It's the pleasant ones which say, oh, yes, go there. Yeah. And the not so pleasant ones which say, mm, no, thank you. Yeah. These are the ones which basically determine the direction of our attention. They determine for what we have time, where we orient towards, what we move to, what we make space for, what we welcome, and what we close down, contract away from, maybe subtly or not so subtly push aside. So channel two, although it doesn't have a proper English word and we help ourselves with that slightly clumsy term feeling tone, is very, very practically important in our lives. Channel three is the mind proper. It's the affective part of our experience. It's where we mostly go when somebody asks us, how are you doing? Yeah. That's normally the place we go to. And we say, well, it feels a bit heavy, or I'm really sighing today, or that was a good, bright day today. I'm feeling pretty good. Generally, when we speak about ourselves, the seat, the subjective locus of our experiences, uh, something called citta in Buddhist psychology. It's the place where we are most identified with. That place sometimes is big and spacious, expansive, and sometimes it's tight, crystalline, contracted. That citta is an interesting animal. It is capable of great awakening. It is intrinsically capable of understanding things. It is constantly producing sankharas and um, it is also sensitive. It has a very a basal sensitivity to it. It is intrinsically responsive. This is not a clean Abhidhamma definition. Well, we would have to spend a little more time on that if we wanted to go into a comprehensive Abhidhamma definition of the citta. But for tonight, this will have to suffice. The citta, as channel three, is a place where many of our impulses happen. It's where our suffering happens, it's where our samadhi happens, it's where our letting go happens. The citta is the state where we have emotions, where we have moods, where we have um, states, where we have will, aspiration, aversion. Yeah? That's the place of the citta. Channel three is where the meat is, basically. Yeah? That's where the meat of our story is. The practice in there is notoriously difficult because the very mind that tries to understand what's going on is already in that very space. Yeah? It is affected. The instrument of our investigation is already affected by what it wants to investigate. Yeah? 
If this was a proper science, then we would have clean tools. We would have a clean workbench. We would have a clean object of investigation. We would have a nicely lit lab. And in that lab, we would then meticulously inspect the states of the chitta. We would then inspect with clean instruments in good lighting what's taking place there. And we would establish causality. We would establish context. We would establish variables. Since this is a messy business, meditating, and you can't keep clean hands in this, um, you're kind of tumbling down a, a, rickety a rickety staircase, and down there the lighting is dim, and you have a grubby workbench, and you have barely clean tools, and no, somebody's misplaced them, you know? And the very thing you want to investigate with is also this thing you are supposed to be investigating, yeah? So, Maybe I'm still slightly too flattering to the situation. We also have, you know, maybe thick gloves on or dirty hands or something like that. Acute danger of infection is rampant. Yeah? <laughs> so that's just about sort of the realities of the meditator's business. That very locus of experience experience which we try to investigate is also the instrument by which we try to experience and to investigate it. So not an easy business. So better have our loins girded for this one. Channel four is where we spend most of our time. Channel four has as raw material the story. It has as raw material the thought, the concept, the image, the statement. Yeah. By habit, channel four is where we go. When we want to figure something out, we go to channel four. What's the plot? What's the story in there? That's where the big narrative go, gets going. What's happening? Who is suffering here? What are my successes? The practice in channel four is somewhat different than uh, in the other three channels. The other three channels are more or less straight meditation instructions. Interesting, the text collections of the Satipatthana Sutta uh, in the different traditions, actually vary. Most of these Satipatthana suttas, we have a couple of Chinese translations, and um, if we put them beside each other, they overlap to large amounts. You know. Where they don't quite overlap is Channel 4. In the Pali, Channel 4 explicitly consists of the five hindrances and the seven awakening factors. It also consists of, you know, the khandhas and the four truths, and <coughs> in some traditions, the ayatanas are in the, sec the sense bases. Um, so the traditions are not quite in agreement which are the patterns of thought or of qualities that are most central to be investigated. All of the traditions, that is interesting, have the Nivarana, have the hindrances, and have the Bojanga, the awakening factors, all of the traditions. We can so be pretty sure that these two sets of qualities are genuine and are authentic and must have been part of the earliest depiction of the Buddha in his teaching of the four establishments of mindfulness. So if we look at the raw material, we're not looking at the exercise the Buddha suggests, just identifying the raw material and the territory of these four satipatthanas. Then we have somatic experience, what everything pertaining to the body, channel one, 
pleasure, displeasure, everything pertaining to hedonic experience, what we like and don't like, channel two, affective experience, the moods, states, emotions, uh, the whole volitional side of our mind, channel three, and we have the cognitive aspect of our mind, um, channel four. So if we don't do much choosing, and if we don't have much training, most of us spend most of the time channel four, you know, because that's where the story goes. That's where something is being said. Most of our attention, I don't really know all of you yet very deeply. I've sp spoken to most of you, but um, let me just voice a general suspicion here. Yeah? Um, most, most of you were probably more identified with thought and images than you are identified with taste. I'm sus I suspect that you will be able to sit several hours here not tasting anything without seriously questioning the identity of your experience or the existence of your person. You know? But as soon as we stop thinking for a while, it doesn't take long. Even people who try to stop thinking quite studiously, once they do stop thinking, sometimes can be quite freaked by the fact that their thinking has stopped and they wonder whether they turn into a cabbage now, you know? or a, a giant rabbit suddenly. You know? No thought, where have I gone? You know? We are so identified with the conceptual side of our experience, with the, the events on Channel 4, that we find it possibly quite threatening if Channel 4 quietens down for a moment. Even though we may write on our flags, we're interested in stilling the mind. Yeah? So it can be quite threatening if actually silence occurs in Channel 4. I think this is an interesting map, and I'd like you to just ponder that this occurs every moment of your experience. All of your experience will have these four aspects. You never get a naked feeling that has no cognitive overlay. You never get a clean thought that has no Vedana quality. If you're very still, and if you're truly mindful, you will notice that there is no thought that does not have a somatic echo. That is quite important, because that makes it possible that instead of going to the story where things happen rapidly, where we have lots of history, where there is big charge, yeah, me in there. And it is possible to shift simply our attention from channel four to channel one. And the same story suddenly boils down to a, a naughty little feeling in the pit of my stomach. Something that is much less threatening, that is much less complicated, that gives rise to much less associative uh, proliferation. Yeah? And it becomes possible to be with something that can create a lot of thought and a lot of cognitive cloud, like fear or anger. I can just be with an unpleasant physical sensation somewhere in the pit of my stomach, and I can maintain awareness of that. And this is a lot more easy and a lot more effective to process that speedily uh, than trying to figure out who there is to blame for, what, for that I am angry now. So it makes a lot of sense, this mapping, because that mapping helps us, say, placing 
our attention, through training obviously, into the channel that is most appropriate and most suitable for growth and transformation of unwholesome stuff and for strengthening and cultivation of wholesome stuff. So one of the skills uh, Satipatthana offers, if we apply ourselves to these teachings, is that we learn both to identify in which channel things are happening and what options do I have. Is it most skillful if I am now trying to think about this or is it more skillful simply trying to hold the feeling of this in my belly or in my neck or wherever I may feel it in the body. And we'll, you'll all know, I'm sure, that things that have an overwhelming, flooding uh, power in, uh, in the mind, in channel 3 or in channel 4, because they come with a cascading wall of thoughts, um, actually are quite simple, funny sensations in the body if we can switch to channel 1 from channel 4. And that is a tremendous relief. So simply to know that there is such a possibility to have a map, to be identifying my personal experience, psychological experience, with that map you know, of the Buddha's teaching gives me the possibility to actually establish where something is happening. I can orient within that map and then tr translate what I have uh, understood from that map into my own psychological experience and then shift the accent of my attention, shift it to something which is right now maybe more promising as an option than continue another loop of thinking about it. Yeah. So I think that's a useful map. I hope to speak more about this on some other occasion. I like to speak of another map which is which unfortunately cannot really acclaim uh, canonical evidence. So uh, you better take this with a pinch of salt. I'd like to speak in very psychological terms of not so much stages of practice, but say phases of Buddhist meditation. Um, I do think that there are four completely indispensable phases of that which I have understood the Buddha to be teaching when he speaks about meditation. And I like just to kind of sketch them out a little bit because it seems important that we learn to orient within the, those four phases. I think a first, and the sequence of here, here is of importance, the first of those phases has to do with stilling. The, that we learn the skill of stilling the mind. Stilling doesn't mean stilling it right down until nothing happens anymore, until we have turned into uh, meditation mummies or there's something like that. Stilling means that we have learned to modulate from where we are to more quiet. Yeah. That we have some training, some skill and some even facility in moving our speedy minds to a more quiet place that we know practical tricks to do that, that we have methods and techniques to help us take away the speed, bring more stability, more focus, more coherence to our experience. I do not think that this is really an option. I do think this is a necessity. Yeah. And it strikes me that this necessity has become 
uh, stronger, more, more, more of a necessity in, in uh, probably the last 50 years. Yeah? Simply because our lives have reached degrees of complexity and the amount of information we all have to process are overwhelming, isn't it? One of the things that that does to our system, having to process huge amounts of information, uh, huge amounts of data sets, if you want, means we get more speedy in our head. We hold greater complexities and we have a higher speed at which things move through us. And it is uh, indispensable that we learn to hold against this tendency, that we learn to make the mind more quiet. How quiet uh, Buddhist traditions have quarreled right from the beginning about this. Yeah? I find a sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya where uh, the Buddha speaks to his monks and one, one, one can't help hearing him speak in a slightly placating voice. Uh, he says that some people develop samatha after they have developed insight. Some people develop insight after they have developed samatha. And some people develop both of them together. Yeah. And it's to my mind, and uh, forgive me, I've been a monk for a long time, so I have some imagination what goes on in monks' minds and in monasteries. One imagines the monks to be quarreling about whether samatha precedes vipassana, how much vipassana is needed before true samatha is possible, how much true samatha is needed before genuine transforming insights are possible. One can't help feeling that something of that sort must have gone on in the monastery so that the Buddha then kind of you know, impartially speaks. Some do samatha first, others do vipassana first, and a third group does both of them together. Wherever you want to draw the line of necessary stillness before transformative insights take place, this is not my issue tonight. My issue tonight is that I want to champion the cause of learning the skill and acknowledging the necessity for that skill to still the mind. To still the mind from where it is, wherever it may be, from the most frantic to already quiet, peaceful, to take it from there and know the, the direction of greater stillness, of greater quiet, of a more profound calm. This is a skill, this is a craft, and that craft um, I, I think is indispensable as a first phase of meditation. The next phase of meditation seems to be gaining perspective. And this perspective has to do that we learn to disidentify with the contents of our experience. Quite clearly to acknowledge that this takes place and yet this is not all that's happening. There is something that is aware of what takes place. Thus, what is aware is not part of what takes place. There is something capable of gaining a perspective, of making those famous two, three steps backward and gaining the bigger picture. That second step seems to me very, very crucial. It is particularly crucial with things that threaten to flood our mind. The big flooders are fear, they are anger, and they are doubt. 
you may count depression amongst them, but the real big flooders, you know, the ones who can quickly flare up and take away all the space on your inner screen are definitely fear, anger, and doubt. Yeah. This can completely consume you in no time. Of all the emotions, these are probably the most overwhelming ones. And particularly for those states, the capacity to disidentify and to distance ourselves from what we think about and what possesses our mind is crucial. That distance we manage to um, bring in between the object of our experience or the content of our experience. Often object is not a good word. It would be much more like a process or the stuff of our experience. Yeah? And the capacity of knowing that stuff. This distance is crucial. Yeah? It's not intrinsically transformative just to be clear about this. But it is crucial because it gives us some safety. It gives us um, a sense of confidence that we can stay out of something before we get sucked in. Yeah? Or that we can stay out so much that we don't get sucked in. Yeah. It doesn't transform it yet, but it means there is something that is capable of knowing and that is not part of the problem. It is capable of knowing and also knowing to be safe, in a safe distance of the problem. There is anger. It is not my anger. Yes, I have something to do with it, but I am not the anger. You know, I do not have to be an angry person or a despairing person or a greedy person. I can witness this experience. I can testify to its detrimental effects. Uh, and yet there is something in me that knows about this. Sometimes I get sucked in. Sometimes I may pull away so far that I believe it's actually gone. The problem has gone. Yeah. Generally, the problem hasn't gone. It's just I'm so far away that I've managed to talk, to talk the problem out of existence for a while. But as soon as I get closer, yeah, it's, the problem is generally still there. However, my knowledge that I can stay out of trouble and stay safe is a prerequisite for me to do stage three. That's the next phase. Stage three consists of exactly the opposite. It is I carefully, in a negotiated way, and respectfully crawl back in yeah, to the very thing I have managed to get myself into safety from. And I have to understand what's taking place there. But I don't want to be sucked in. I don't want to become part of the problem again. I want to hold the clarity I've managed and bring that clarity and investigation into that stuff of my experience. I want to bring this back in. Now, for me to be able to do that, I need the strength of my stillness and of my clarity that comes from phase one. I need the confidence that I can move away faster than it moves towards me. Yeah, I get from stage two. Yeah. Now let us be clear about stage two. Many people you will meet, and I hope you're not amongst them, many people you will meet will think that is meditation. Yeah. Going someplace safe where nothing can hurt you anymore. 
having your little candle or your little mantra or your little meditation object and being able to just go quiet and to feel safe and you know nobody's going to hurt you there. I think this is a legitimate developmentally psychological necessity. I think it is a perfect legitimate need, but it is not what the Buddha meant with uh, liberating development of mind. It is nothing else but basically uh, creating safety. That is not intrinsically transformative, however pleasant this can be to be able to go someplace safe. I'm not trying to belittle this. I'm just trying to say this is not what the Buddha meant with meditative liberation. It is very clear that this prerequisite needs to be continued with the next stage. And that next stage has to do with inquiry, with investigation, with profoundly probing into. Those of you who were here when I spoke about the images of sati, think of sati in the analogy of the doctor who probes a wound, the surgeon who probes uh, the arrowhead of a man who's, uh, who's injured and the shaft of that arrow that hit him Uh, broke off. So he has that arrowhead that is buried in his flesh and he finds, the surgeon finds out the size and the tech, uh, the contours and the depth of that arrowhead that it, that he doesn't see. He finds that out with the help of a probe that goes into the wound and gives him a tactile experience of how big the thing is, where it is and what shape it has, enabling the surgery. That's the type of sati I'm speaking of here in this image. Namely, we need to probe into that which we have distanced ourselves from. We need to probe into that which we have disidentified with. Not every thought and every feeling, let's be clear. There's plenty of stuff. Not every Vedana needs profound investigation. Just take the big ones. Go for the fat ones. There's plenty. If you can't be sure what it is, just let them go. Take the next one. There's, there'll be plenty more to come. So our investigation has to be selective. We don't have eternities, and we need to go for the important stuff. But I don't think without such investigation, freedom is really coming about. It is painfully obvious to me, as somebody who's been meditating for a number of years, that we can meditate around problems. That we can make meditation uh, an instrument of our defense patterns. This is obvious to me, and meditators, particularly gifted and dedicated meditators, need to be aware of this. Yeah? Goodwill alone doesn't count. You know? It's again indispensable, but we need to be asking questions. In fact, even unpleasant questions. Any unpleasant question is a good question. Yeah? So, stage three is a personal stage. It deals with my story, it deals with my temperament, it deals with my patterns, it deals with my hang-ups, and it deals with my talents, with my gifts. So that homework has to be done in a personal way. We'll have to delve into our own patterning of mind. What that mind brings as virtues, as powers, as strength, Many of those we may not actually acknowledge so quickly. Yeah? Instead of feeling strong, we just think everybody else is so slow and so weak and feeble. Yeah? So Sometimes gifted people in a particular area, 
don't acknowledge their gifts. All they get is impatient with the rest of the world. So acknowledgement of what we bring to this practice, what we bring as skills, as qualities, as strength of our mind, is part of this third phase, as much as this sober and honest acknowledgement of our hang-ups, our weaknesses, the bits that don't take place in our practice. And the things that freak us. Sometimes teachers are very, very clear. One of the beauty of Ajahn Chah's teaching (laughs) is uh, his immense simplicity and his uh, striking images. He rarely wrote letters, but one of the last letters he wrote was when uh, his American disciple was already over in England and he uh, had had his first stroke. And after that, he wrote him a very brief letter. And in that letter it said, um, I can't really um, promise to be able to quote it verbatim, but the the punchline was, uh, when you can't go forward, when you can't go backward, when you can't go left or can't go right, where do you go, Sumedho? And it ended, the things you love and the things you hate, those are your both, both your best teachers. Yeah. So phase three asks us to look into the things we dread, the things we hate, the things we love. In other words, the things that have the strongest impact on our mind. Those are the things that probably need some investigation. Yeah. And it's a sign of mature practice if you stop trying to get away from things you feel bad about or you try to curve around because you have always felt you can't really do them properly and you try to find other ways of doing them. That's not a bad thing, but there is a point when you actually need to start doing the stuff you can't do well, when you have to get interested in the stuff that you felt always helpless about. Or when you start looking at things that you never knew quite how to be with. That's, I would think, a sign of a mature practice, that you're willing to meet that. And I don't think this is something you can really avoid. Usually the universe has its own tricks to get you there. Sometimes if you don't quite cooperate, uh, the universe has its own ways to lead you there. Gracefully, less gracefully. Sometimes you get dragged there. Sometimes you get nudged there. Sometimes you just gently kind of led along the side of your successes over to the place where you're not sure you're going to succeed. So, obviously, more elegant in waiting till your destiny leads you, as one of the Greek, uh, the, the Roman philosophers say, Seneca, who says, uh, the wise is led by his destiny. The fool is dragged by it. So going there before it starts hurting. Going there before we are really forced to. Going there with a little when the incentive seems small. Is going there and inquire. What is it that really gets me? What is it I'm afraid of? What is it I'm really so enthralled by? Can I investigate this? Can I understand what's really behind this? Can I be with this a little closer without getting sucked in or pushed away? And 
Can I be humble and acknowledge that there is something deeply embarrassing in this? You know, the personal bit that I wanted to transcend when I started meditating, suddenly meeting that personal bit again. My family history and my hang-ups and my fears and my longings and meeting that part without being shamed, without being identified with it, and yet acknowledging, yes, this is the gateway through which I practice. This is the gateway. This is the temperament. This is the particular patterning I am called to understand, hold, let go or transform and be liberated through this gateway. Phase four is interesting. It's again a kind of moving out. And in phase four, what we have learned in phase three on a personal level, in delving into introspectively into our own lives and hearts and minds, in phase four, we begin to get the bigger perspective of the lessons we have learned in personal terms in phase three. We begin to see in universal terms, in bigger, in transpersonal terms. We begin to recognize that what has happened to us happens to somebody under very different circumstances, and yet we recognize the pattern. We begin to recognize, oh, okay, that's what's happening. Yeah. Although it looks different for him, the circumstances seem all different, but we begin to recognize, oh, okay, he's in that one. This I recognize. I recognize this pattern not because I had the same experience, because, but there are too many similarities in the terrain for me not to recognize my own history. Yeah. It is our own suffering that makes us more patient and more compassionate with the suffering of others. It is our own struggles that bring us the tools and the skills that make us able to help others. If you have teachers, if these teachers will most, if they're good teachers, they will most likely not have been perfect right from the beginning. Yeah, I've always been struck by how uh, how strangely inspiring so-called shining people may be, and how strangely helpless they may be actually when it comes to helping real people with real struggles. Yeah. If you have never had any difficulty with anger you are very unlikely to be of great use to somebody who struggles with anger. If you don't know what desire is, you know, how slavish this can be, how demeaning this can be, how shamed you can feel. If you don't know any of this, if you've never felt, you know, pulled and pushed, then you are unlikely to be responding very compassionately to people who wrestle with desire. If you've never really known fear, or confusion, you're unlikely to be of great use to somebody who is in the, in the throngs of fear and confusion. Yeah. It's the great teachers, you know, whom we admire, who generally have struggled in great ways in exactly that domain they have become great teachers in. Yeah. Ajahn Chah's um, power in teaching and his uh, tremendous tremendous understanding of human beings, even uh, non-Thai human beings, when they turned up in his monastery, 
came clearly from his own struggles with his own mind. He wasn't kind of born in a cellophane wrapper, pristine and awake. And, you know, it was. Uh, if you read his biographies, uh, um, there were some fairly fleshly moments in his life, and uh, not everything was hunky dory right from the beginning. You know, the inspiring bit in my experience has always been the people when they were not yet awakened. Yeah, when they were still struggling. That's the inspiring bit. When they met their own hang-ups and their own challenges and their own, um, you know, struggle with their own patterning, that I think is has always been more inspiring to me than the other way around. If we look good, we all look good. Yeah, but how do we look when we don't look good? That's where it really, that's where that's where really the um, the chaff and the grain gets get separated. So think of those four phases. I'd like you to ponder what is your notion of practice? What is your notion of meditation? Do you recognize these four phases in your own practice? If you do not recognize them, please acknowledge which one do you think is the one you are in or the one you are trying to be in most of the time? Which one is the one which is missing? Consider the skill of stilling the mind, quietening the mind, uh, the many forms of samatha practice, um, the many forms of stabilizing, focalizing attention, and uh, learning to create continuity in our capacity to be with something. Phase two, the capacity to disidentify, to move back, to move out of the problem zone, get off stage into the third rank, and kind of look at this from a distance. Learning to do this is a useful and, I would say, indispensable skill. And once we know that we can do that, we can feel safe enough to get a little closer and see, can we be in there? What happens when we get closer? What does change in my heart, in my body, in my mind? Is this too risky? Let's go back a bit to the, le- to the next safe place. If we feel safe, we go back, go closer again and look. Does it change? Do we, does, do we change? We move this negotiation, this shuttling between safety and problem, between that which I understand and where I feel stable and intact, and that which I start to shrivel a bit, or that which I kind of lose my bearings a bit. Yeah? Learning to handle the um, mythologists call this the liminal ther- uh, territory, you know, the tr- transitional territory. Yeah? Most of our deepest insights will come from the place where we don't feel confident. Most of our learning edge will be in a zone we probably don't quite like to go to. The most treasured herbs of our wisdom grow in a place we generally don't like to go to because that's the edge, that's the quiver, that's the zone where we don't feel safe, where we have no guarantee of winning. And our deepest wisdom generally comes from touching our confusion most courageously. Phase four, sorry, phase three um, is this movement, in and out. Don't expect this to be a unidirectional thing. Generally, you don't go in heroically and fix it. Um, Usually that's an attempt you 
you don't survive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, either way. <laughs> you, you just don't fix life that way. <laughs> you uh, reconcile with characteristics, you reconcile with conditioning, you acknowledge boundaries, you tread carefully, yeah. you learn to test the ground, you move and you learn and you move and you learn. You get burnt, you move back, you wait, you lick your wounds, you move back in. And then, you know, sometimes you find out that it's not all hellish. It's not all full greed, hatred, and delusion. There are wonderful things in there, maybe where you didn't expect it. Some of the most dramatic changes take us by surprise. Phase four is when you get the bigger picture, when you realize this is not just happening to me. Hey, there's a few others in there. And look, his particular quest went that way, yeah? And you recognize the validity of what you personally have learned and introspectively have understood. You learn to see the validity of this in a bigger scene yeah, with others. You learn to discern patterns of growth, degrees of denial, <laughs> uh, steps of resolution, and so forth. Tool arsenals of skills and upayas of uh, means. So consider this, try to see your own notions of meditation, your own notions of where you need to go in your practice. See whether this somehow can be uh, situated in that little map. Yeah. Good, I like to end with this and uh, would love to read you a small, very small little story. Chances are you know it already, but I find it very touching. It's from the depth of the uh, Samyutta Nikaya. It speaks about uh, practice in unexpected ways, and it's about the little girl. Yeah? The little girl has the telling name Medakatalika, which means something like frying pan. It's an unflattering name, I admit. But <clears throat> it has probably something to do with her profession. And she's an acrobat and uh, uh, works together with another acrobat, and the two of them have a, a telling exchange. So let me read that. It's called Siddhaka, and it is uh, straight from the uh, connected discourses in the Satipatthana Samyutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling among the Sumbas, where there was a town of the Sumbas named Siddhaka. There the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus, once in the past, an acrobat set up his bamboo pole and addressed his apprentice, Medakatalika thus. Come, dear Medakatalika, climb the bamboo pole and stand on my shoulders. Having replied, yes, teacher, the apprentice Medakatalika climbed up the bamboo pole and stood on the teacher's shoulders. You have to imagine traveling artists, yeah, a man and a girl. Um, they both make a living by showing off in villages and then moving on. And... The Buddha also speaks to his monks, and for reasons we do not know, the Sutta does not tell us, uh, he tells the monks this story about Medakatalika, which in the text has an interesting life. Uh, she's quite clearly a girl, uh, but then one manuscript tradition tried to make a boy out of her. It was somehow embarrassing to have a girl, because she turns out quite well at the end, yeah? I'll tell you. So, 
um, it had to be restored. You know? So with the help of other manuscript traditions, the girl had to be restored because the nice thing about manuscript traditions, there is many lineages of them. And so after a while, you get enough corroborative evidence that you know what it probably was. And so the, 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 boy, the little boy turned little girl again. So the teacher then, when uh, the girl is on his shoulder, says, uh, you protect me, dear Medicatalica, and I'll protect you. Thus, guarded one by another, protected one by another, we'll display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. When this was said, the apprentice Medicatalica replied, this is not the way to do it, teacher. You protect yourself, teacher, and I'll protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. Yeah. Unusual, yeah? little girl contradicting her teacher directly. Then the Buddha, that's the method there, the Blessed One said. It is just as the apprentice Medicatalika said to the teacher, I'll protect myself because thus should the establishments of mindful be practiced, I'll protect others because thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. Protecting oneself because one protects others, protecting others, one protects oneself. Now something interesting is happening. Yeah. The girl contradicts her teacher. The teacher says, you look after me, I'll look after you, thus we're protected. The girl says, no, you look after yourself, I look after myself, that's how we're doing our business safe. The Buddha accords with the girl. He says, she's right in this. One protects oneself first, and thus, protecting oneself, one protects others. So he first agrees with her, and then he turns what seemed to be mutually contradictory. He turns, he twists together. So he then continues and says, and how is it, bhikkhus, that by protecting oneself, one protects others? By pursuit, by development, and by cultivation of the four establishments of mindfulness, one protects oneself. In such a way, one is protecting oneself, one, and one protects others. And how is it, bhikkhus, that by protecting others, one protects oneself? By patience by harmlessness, by loving-kindness, and by sympathy. It is such a way, in such a way, by practicing, by protecting others, one protects oneself. I will protect myself because thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practiced. I will protect others, thus should the establishments of mindfulness be practice, practiced. Yeah. Interesting little piece. Starts off with two contradictory statements. The Buddha very uh, unusually agrees with the girl yeah. who says, look after yourself, and the other one looks after himself, and so both are looked after. And then he conjoins the two statements and says, in fact, if you look after yourself, you also look after others. In fact, if you look after others, you also look after yourself. And how do you do that? Let me give you the key words again. One protects Others, by looking after oneself, by giving oneself to something, by developing and by cultivating the four foundations of mindfulness. 
in such a way protecting oneself one protects others and how is it that by protecting others one protects oneself yeah. through the practice of patience through the practice of harmlessness through the practice of loving kindness and through the practice of sympathy sympathy yeah. so in that we care and look after others patiently sympathetically lovingly uh, and by exercising harmlessness we also look after ourselves i find that a fascinating little piece so i leave you with that for tonight thank you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.